The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. It's only glucose. It's not much. It's the only medicine we have. Hmm. You have made strides. The last time I revived, they were using leeches. You're... you're not using leeches. Mm, no. When... Uh, when was the last time? 1700. Very tumultuous. Pope Innocent XII had just died. I've been revived 19 times, once every hundred years. When I'm revived, I walk the earth for months. Last time I managed a visit to London. Remarkable city. It's a bit damp in the winter. I was wondering why an ancient Roman spoke English. Ancient? Yes, I suppose I am. Every time I walk the earth, I learn the languages of the dominant cultures. This is the King's English from William's court. William III. Now, I'm curious. Who is the King of England now? Mm, Charles. I, uh, I don't know what number he is. Americans don't pay much attention unless there's a scandal. Americans? So you won independence? Yes, in 1776. Oh, I thought it was coming. In democracy? One person, one vote. Big mistake. But you're young. London. It's Thursday, September 19th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be People seem to be crazy about crassy, Robert. Democracy is still an alien concept, I think, to most people. That's one of the things we're going to be looking at today, and I know you're going to be looking at something you call wrong rights. Is that right, or is that wrong? That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's okay. wrong rights and the Quebec Charter of Values. That'll be very interesting, because I think both of our of our themes will certainly meld into each other. 519-661-3600 is a number you can always call to join in on this conversation or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Now, my first item might not sound like it's so much about the issue of democracy, but it is, and it has to do with a local story that appeared in the front page of the Free Press this past Saturday. I think you saw it there when we had a lunch on this past weekend, remember? Yes. A startling headline and photo on the cover of Saturday's uh, London Free Press, and it read, Meet London's Mr. Cairo, with the subheader, an intensive care doctor at University Hospital, Wail Hadara helped give birth to Egypt's first democratic presidency, only to watch the military undo it. Then there's a two-page spread in the paper with the headline, Our Man in Egypt, in which the story by Jennifer O'Brien in a special report reveals that Wael Hadara's specialty is critical situation overseeing the surgical intensive care unit at a London hospital. But over the past year, he's also led a double life 
as a key advisor to Egypt's first democratically elected, then deposed president. In the text of the report, we learn that Dr. Hadara has lived two extraordinary lives, one where he teaches at Western University and sits on the board of a mosque, and the other in his native Egypt, where he was a trusted advisor to the ousted president, Mohamed Morsi. Quote, it was an opportunity to bridge my two identities, Hadara says, of his decision to help the Brotherhood-backed Freedom and Justice Party. There's an interesting name. Have heard that name before? After the 2011 Egyptian Revolution led to that country's first elections. Quote, I see myself as someone who has a foot in both cultures. I value my Egyptian roots and values. And I also know that there are a lot of great things about Canada and the United States and other Western nations. A family friend asked him if he'd meet with Issam el-Haddad, a leader of the Brotherhood-backed Freedom and Justice Party. Gearing up for the upcoming elections, Freedom and Justice Party members wanted to hear what a Canadian Muslim felt the Arab Spring should focus on. Freedom and rights, and what enables those things, says Hadara. Only free people can choose one path or another. Sounds, sounds great so sounds, far. Sounds great, doesn't yeah. it? Hadari says he spent several weeks in Egypt helping Morsi frame messages. And now President Morsi wanted him on his team. He wants to help democracy flourish, says David Hassan, a longtime friend of Hadara. And, says friend Ali D. Chabar, he's a mentor to many. He has a lot of time for people others would not have time for. Since the coup, Hadara has remained in constant communication with contacts in Egypt. Hadara doesn't know what's next and says there were ups and downs, more of the latter. But it was the promise of the outcome, a free democratic Egypt, in which people can choose their leaders openly and freely, that kept us going, end quote. Any immediate reactions to that, Robert? I think that there's probably a confusion between freedom and democracy. The two don't necessarily go hand in glove. Just because a society may be democratic does not necessarily mean that that's going to lead to freedom. I agree, and I think there's one more thing that there's a confusion about. Freedom or democracy in elections. Yes, that, another, exactly. Another division there. But well, no, democracy those, doesn't necessarily mean that right. you elect your leaders. Now, although those are, 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 are the focus of my... Um, theme today. I, I do have to touch on this because it, it shows and illustrates the incredible contradiction that's going on here. Now, if nothing else, this report certainly lends credence to the comments made by Salim Mansour on our show when he agreed with Tarek Fatah that this city and this campus is a hotbed of Islamic activity. I mean, uh, and now here's another vital piece of the puzzle. And this has to do with, of course, uh, the, the, the Brotherhood itself. And this is from a copy of a news magazine, a weekly news magazine I have, and it's called Focus Magazine. And get the date on this. October 28th, 1953. Yeah, that's 1953, long before the issue of Islam was in the front lines of Western culture. And the heading reads, The Brotherhood of Blood, Hassan's Knives Flash as Fanatic Muslim Fraternity Terrorizes Mideast with Kill or Be Killed Gospel. And it reads as follows. Brotherhood was founded in Egypt in 1928 when conditions were ripe for a movement preaching social reform. Promising, you know, get this list and compare that to what we just heard, restoration of the Koran as the law of the land, rejection of Western ideas, formation of a giant Arab empire, the cult caught fire 
fed on such fuel as poverty among the fellahin, the peasants, high cost of living, absence of trade unions, small but extremely privileged upper class. When the Brotherhood won over the country clergy, it licked the recruiting problem. Whipped into frenzy by their priests, hundreds of thousands of young men were organized into fighting formations. Founder of Brotherhood was Hassan Albana, sometimes called Sheikh Rasputin because of his questionable morals. Albana sold his movement to the peasantry on religious grounds, which is one of the issues you're going to be dealing with, Robert, mm -hmm. using the hate technique successfully employed in the U.S. by the Ku Klux Klan. Quote, the laws of the Koran are suitable for all men at all times to the end of the world. This is the day and this is the time when the world needs Islam most, end quote. Western democracy, this is still from that article, Western democracy held little uh, attraction for Albana. We are not eager to have a parliament of the people or of cabinet ministers. His skill as a terrorist deprived Albana both his job and his life. In 1948, the Brotherhood's raids into Palestine were embarrassing Egypt. And on February 12, 1949, as a birthday gift to the king, 59-year-old Banna was assassinated by the men that he had trained for murder. His successor, ex-Supreme Court Judge Hassan el-Hadibi, was appointed by Farouk three days after Albana's liquidation. It is written in the Koran, quote, The sword is the key of heaven and hell. A drop of blood shed in the cause of God, a night spent in arms, is more avail than two months of fasting and prayer. Whoever so falls in battle, his sins are forgiven, end quote. The Koran passage is a popular one wherever Arabic is spoken today, meaning 1953. It binds two and a half million Muslims into a fanatic blood brotherhood dedicated to the advancement of Islam. Like red ants, the Muslim brotherhood swarms through the Mideast, ignoring national boundaries, grubbing beneath the surface of Mediterranean politics. The sect was the strong arm behind the rise of General Mohammed Naguib to dictatorship in Egypt. So here's the same group that brought a dictator in. In return, Naguib has made it a government-sanctioned force, which is exactly what the current government's trying to undo today. There are indications that the Naguib Brotherhood honeymoon may soon be over. When Naguib recently addressed students at Cairo's Ibrahim University, he was greeted with chants of, quote, the Koran is our constitution, end quote. But even Nagi may have trouble. The Brotherhood is not to be destroyed by hacking off one segment of its snake-like body. It will writhe through the Middle East for generations to come. A quietly plotting, organized army of zealots with orders to spill blood until all humans turn to face Mecca at sundown, end quote. That's an article written in 1953. Prophetic? Yes, indeed. Amazing. Scary. So, democracy, eh? In Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood? How do you reconcile those two things? The two are irreconcilable. They are diametrically opposed. So do you think that this fellow doesn't know it, um, this doctor? Is he not aware of the, the tremendous you know, conflict between these very two concepts? The basic concepts are so different. Well, you know, I'm reminded of Takiya again. Yeah. Lie in the name of Islam. Well, is that what's going on? You know? Don't know. Salim Mansour so often insisted, you know, he says, connect the dots. He always says that. These are not isolated incidents, and you can't mix left and right. You can't mix black and white. You can't mix good with evil or democracy with theocracy. They don't mix. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood is about theocracy and stands in direct self-stated opposition to democracy. So here are our locals going over there to support what is called the Muslim Brotherhood, the same organization. It hasn't changed its tune from what I know. 
and it stands in direct opposition to democracy, and yet they say they're there for democracy. Why? Because they can vote themselves into oppression. That's what they're... That's what they think democracy is. It gives and them le- some sense of legitimacy, doesn't it? Perhaps, perhaps. But voting's irrelevant to the debate, I think, irrespective of which side you may, be, may happen to be on. Uh, you know, that Egypt voted itself into a theocracy changes nothing from having been a dictatorship. It still is one in terms of how its government would act. Its government does not have a democratic philosophy. And then written as if it were some shocking revelation, a headline in Monday's Free Press about Tarek Lubani and John Grayson, both of London and currently in an Egyptian jail, and it doesn't look very good for them, but it reads, quote, Egyptian justice completely arbitrary, <laughs> in quotation marks. Uh, duh, you know, hello. It's called theocracy. It's not a democracy, even though voting took place. Both sides in the Egyptian political debate are theocratic and not democratic. Voting, and that, that might not mean that one's not better than the other or preferable within the context of those two things, but let's not make any errors about them being democratic. And the belief that voting is the essential ingredient of democracy is, that's a myth that's got to go. It's not the essential ingredient of democracy. Democracy explicitly distinguishes itself from theocracy in that in a democracy, state power and authority originates in the people themselves, as in the rights that individuals should properly have, which is going to be largely your your topic coming up later in the show. Mm-hmm. And whether it takes the form of a constitutional monarchy, a republic, like you know, Americans they always like to say the U.S. is not a democracy, but it is. I'm sorry, in this in this sense of the word, and. Um, even it's currently being run by the so-called Democratic Party, but it is a democracy even in a republic form. That's how we would look at it, right? Or do you disagree? Do you no, no, I actually agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, theocracy, in stark contrast to democracy, states that government's authority is derived from God. And with that giant leap off the cliff of reality, the political and social disaster that follows is both predictable and inevitable. So... The question arises, how do you go about the selection of democratic or theocratic, or rather, how you go about the the selection of democratic or theocratic representatives is a secondary issue, as it is in every dictatorship where voting also takes place. We forget that voting takes place in dictatorships, too. I remember I was brought up when the Soviet Union was there, and they said, yeah, they vote. They get to vote for one party, (laughs) (laughs) and we all go out and vote, and there's your, what you said, your legitimacy. They even insisted on the vote so that they could legitimize themselves. People forget as well that uh, Hitler was democratically elected. Yes. And so well, was Trudeau and Obama. <laughs> so in any case, democracy is not about voting. It's about the rights of the individual. And we'll find out more about this as we return from this. Mindy, why are you mad at your coat? <laughs> because my watch stopped. Ah, and you suspect your coat. No, my watch stopped and I got a ticket. Oh, no, when I watch stuff, we only get a warning and they take away Mickey's hands. See, I was parked in this no-parking-after-six zone with my Jeep, and I got back late because of this stupid watch. I got a $15 ticket. Oh, that doesn't sound fair. It's not. Then don't pay the ticket. We're with you. Right on, Mama. I've got to. It's the law. Who made that law? I don't know. The the town council or something. Who said they could do it? The people that voted them into office. What people? You know, the people of Boulder, Dad, Grandma, me, you know. Boy, that's stupid. You voted to give yourself a ticket. (laughs) Yeah, I guess indirectly I did, didn't I? (laughs) See, in a democracy, everybody votes and then the majority wins. Well, I vote we adopt Dolly Parton. (laughs) 
Do I win? <laughs> no, with two people, you can't have a winner. Oh, sounds like democracy will never replace bobbing for french fries. <laughs> Look, Mark, I'm not an authority on these things. If you have questions, you really should go out and ask other people and get other opinions. May I ask you just one more question? Sure. Why didn't I win with one vote? Well, that's because you need at least three people to vote. That way you've always got somebody to break the tie. What if someone votes twice? No, in a democracy, you can only vote once. What a primitive system. On our we have a much more sophisticated way. If someone wants to be president, we just say, sure, go ahead, it's cool. <laughs> Who's your friend? Minnie McConnell meets Sergei Khrushchev. Mindy, Sergey. Mind, Serg. Me, Se, M. Nano, Nano! Oh, <laughs> I see you spend some time with Mork here. Oh, yes, he showed me so many things about your customs, you know? So, what do you think? How do you like my new face? Oh, what great country. You don't like face, you get a new one. <laughs> Same face, new paint job. <laughs> yeah, I knew it knocked your socks off. <laughs> What do you do? Oh, I am student and shallow player. Mm -hmm. Oh. Sergei's going to be part of our democracy. Oh, that's great. Listen, you're going to love living in this country. No, I mean our democracy. Sergei's going to be our third so we can vote. He's going to live with us. Yeah. <laughs> can I talk to you for a moment? I think we should vote on that. I vote no. What do you think, Sergei? <laughs> I'm with you, Mork. Two to one, you lose. <laughs> I want to talk to you. Oh, we just voted on that. <laughs> now. Oh, that's a different story. Oh, please to excuse me. Where may I find laboratory, please, for me? Oh, you mean the restroom. It's right through there. Oh, a bed. I never saw a restroom where you could really rest. Well, it's America. Really out of state. <laughs> what have you done? I got us a third for democracy. You just can't invite anyone to come live here? I know that. We'll vote on it. Oh, no, we won't. I pay the rent and I say he can't stay. Oh, I see. The one with the money controls the votes. <laughs> That's not it. Mindy, you don't understand. You see, Sergei's sleeping outside on a bench and he's got a violin with a gland condition. Lord, you can't just go and... Mindy, I don't think our democracy's working too well. Let's have a dictatorship instead, okay? I'll be the tyrant and you'll be the peon. Huh? Huh? Can I be the tyrant? Huh? Can I be the tyrant? Come on now. <laughs> That's from, of course, the series Mork and Mindy. We'll be hearing about how they resolve this situation a little later in the show today. Uh, interesting question on the relationship between democracy and particularly a freedom of religion. I discovered the following commentary in my book library, sitting up on uh, my bookshelf after you and I had a conversation earlier this week, Robert. And we were talking about communities and, and issues of that issue. And there I had a book called Building a Community of Citizens. And it's, written, and it's published by the University Press of America, Commonwealth Foundation, 1994. And uh, it asked the question that we just dealt with in the first quarter. Basically, how realistic is it to view democracy as a model set of political arrangements to be exported? It's an interesting question. And it also asks, what's the role of technology as a force for freedom and dem democratic change? 
for democracy to prosper, does a nation have to have certain ideals and assumptions, or is it enough to copy institutions and political arrangements, such as free recurrent elections, separation of the executive and judiciary branches, and respect for civil liberties? Now, opinions differ sharply over the answer to these questions, says the author, Os Guinness, who you and I checked out. He's a religious writer. He's very, a very religious fellow, right? Mm -hmm. And um, now I personally don't support the idea of freedom of religion as being a legitimate right in and of itself. I regard it as a subset of freedom. He does not. He disagrees with us. Yet I found what he had to say here was very interesting, and I just think it might reflect on a few of the things you're going to have to say and certainly would contribute to the conversation. And he argues that no part of the American experiment stands out more clearly, yet is less appreciated or copied, as a key to modern troubles than the religious liberty clauses of the First Amendment. There is a simple but vital question, he says, how do we in an age of expanding worldwide pluralism live with our deepest, that is, our religiously and ideologically intense differences? Reforging the public philosophy, in which the author argues for religious liberty, which he equates with freedom of conscience. Okay, that's what he calls it. So he, he, he equates religious liberty with freedom of conscience, which kind of muddles it a bit. But He then cites five reasons why religious liberty remains a vital part of America's public philosophy. First, religious liberty is not a luxury, he says. It's not a second-class right. It's not a constitutional redundancy or a subcategory of free speech. It is intricately linked to other basic rights, but it does not need them to sub supplement its legitimacy. It is a right that may not be submitted to any vote, nor encroached upon by the expansion of the bureaucratic state. Now, you and I would probably not agree with that. Oh, does he go on to yeah. try to justify yes, that statement? His second point is balance, though he doesn't use that term. He says some religions of the world, like Western Europe, this is interesting ob observation, exhibit a strong political civility that is directly linked to their weak religious commitments. And others, like the Mideast, exhibit a strong religious commitment directly linked to their weak political activity. That's an interesting observation or weak political civility, sorry. American democracy has afforded the fullest opportunity for strong religious commitment and strong political civility to complement rather than threaten each other. Third, the, Amer the First Amendment is essential and indispensable to the character of the American Republic. It's interesting here to note that the amendment was not included in the chapter, perhaps to downplay the fact that the so-called religious liberty referred to is not called religious liberty and is only one of three fundamental components. It reads as this. This is the First Amendment, 1791. Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people, people to peacefully assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. That's got a lot in it. Mm -hmm. The First Amendment's ordering of the relationship of religion and public life is the most successful part of the entire American experiment, he argues. Fourth, and here's where things get more interesting for me, because this is where he gets a real different yet legitimate spin on, on this conversation that I have sort of issues with. He says the religious liberty clauses are the single strongest non-theological reason why free speech and free exercise of religion have been closely related and why religion in general has persisted more strongly in the U.S. than any other comparable modern country. The reason lies in the effect of the American style of disestablishment. By separating church and state, but not religion 
and government or public life, each faith is thrown onto reliance on its own claimed resources. The overall effect is to release a free and unfettered competition of people and beliefs similar to the free market competition of capitalism. That's interesting. Fifth, and here on this point, I do agree, value neutrality in social affairs is impossible. To demand neutral discourse in public life, as some still do, should now be recognized as a way of coercing people to speak publicly in someone else's language and thus never be true to their own. Multiculturalism and expanding pluralism is no stranger to the American experience, but the last generation has witnessed yet another thrust forward in religious pluralism in, the two, in two significant ways. One, Buddhist and Muslim, and two, Americans with no religious preference. The effect of the exploding diversity can be seen in a form of cultural breakdown. Collapse of the previously accepted understandings of the relationship of religion and public life and the triggering of culture wars. As a result, a series of bitter, fruitless contentions over religions and politics will erupt. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Like it or not, modern plurality or sorry, modern pluralism stands squarely as both the child of and the challenger to religious liberty. If religious liberty makes pluralism more likely, pluralism makes religious liberty more necessary. And then he says, and here's what his conclusion to all of this is, at least for our purposes. And that's the author's call for the necessity of having a public philosophy. And what he calls, he calls it by something we wouldn't use, he says, coventinal, uh, covenantalism and chartered pluralism. I don't like those terms, I can hardly pronounce them. Uh, he really needs to invent a new word for this concept here, if that's what it takes. However, I already know what term I would prefer, but here's how the author Os Guinness looks at this chartered pluralism. By comparing it to, quote, the two existing visions of religion and public life now deadlocked. Namely, communitarianism, the social vision that degenerates into tribalism, and libertarianism, the vision that degenerates into political idiocy. <laughs> <laughs> communitarianism, found both on the left and right, virtually equates politics with morality. Whereas libertarianism, also found on both the left and right, and he means right wing, left wing here, virtually excludes morality from politics. When transferred to the level of a public philosophy, it tends to see everything in terms of an individualism that sucks the commonness out of public life altogether. Curiously, both social visions betray their inadequacies as candidates of the public philosophy because they rule themselves out on the grounds of their own principles. In the politically unlikely event that communitarianism were to prevail as a public philosophy, it would become a form of majoritarianism, majority rule. On the other hand, if the communitarian vision does not seek to prevail as a public philosophy, the effect of communitarianism is to reinforce relativism, not community. Libertarian and libertarianism, in contrast, sets out to widen the sphere of public freedom by relativizing all faiths. Everyone will be more free if no one's in a if if no one's uh, religion is imposed on anyone else because everything depends on where you're coming from. End quote. That's his libertarian attitude. But the effect is to revitalize all positions except relativism, and so to assert a new imposition in public life, that of a dogmatized relativism and a universalized libertarianism. What an interesting conclusion. Which I guess is another way of saying both the worst of both worlds. And a very interesting way to describe a significant sector of our social environment today. Now, to me, religious liberty means only one thing, Robert, the right to be free from religion. And that's when you know you have a right. I think that's the test of a right. I don't know if you're going to get into that. The right to say no to a given proposition. 
You know, we all like to say we have a right to health care and education, for example. But I don't think we do. I think both of these areas of economic activity have been communitarianized, to use his mm -hmm. words, or socialized into a single-payer state monopoly. You can't say no, even if you opt out. You still pay taxes and suffer the market restrictions or penalties or prohibitions if you want to exercise anything you would call a right. So it's not right to say that we have a right to health care and education because we don't. That's like uh, right. the right to uh, vote. When people are compelled to vote as they are, for example, in Australia, they've lost the right to vote right. because they can't say no. Exactly. I don't want to vote. Now, the solution I see is called something, something called democracy, and I see it as different from both socialist relativism and libertarian relativism. It's not theocracy, it's not anarchy, it's not relativism. You know, Ted Wernham was on uh, one of the radio stations the other day, he made an amazing statement. He said, democracy fails in a society when voters realize they can vote themselves benefits. Mm. He repeated that a couple times. I heard that. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, we started off the show with one, one person, one vote, big mistake? Well, because that's majority rule. That's not democracy. Even though a democracy may, in fact, elect its representatives or choose its policies on that electoral rule. In fact, one person, one vote is a radical departure from the principle of taxation without representation, you know, the makers, or representation without taxation, the takers who get to vote without having to pay the taxes, right? In the past, only taxpayers voted. Only property owners voted for property taxes. Now everybody does. So everybody has the voting franchise when they shouldn't have it. And, you know, that way at least any increases in taxation were being authorized by those paying the tax, not those wanting the tax. And that's a difference. And so democracy is really about legitimate authority emanating from the governed. Theocracy is about illegitimate authority emanating from dictators and collectivists who use religion as their validation for that authority. Definitely not from the people. And if you don't agree, well, we could always have a vote, couldn't we? But there's only two of us here, Bob. <laughs> well, then I win. We need a Sergey. Gotta go. We'll be back. I don't get it. What? Why did Sergey call himself an alien if he'd never even been to the moon? We call people who come here from other countries aliens. Oh, that's strange. Everyone on Orc calls himself an Orkin. You humans subdivide yourself into different species. Russians, Americans, Protestants, Jews, game show hosts. <laughs> We do. I'm afraid that we haven't learned to live together very well yet. Another thing I feel strange about is democracy. Why? Well, after Sergei got his apartment, he went out to get a driver's license, and because he was an alien, it took all day. Oh, I think you're getting democracy mixed up with bureaucracy. Oh, semantic confusion or rendered lips. <laughs> <laughs> you see, democracy is the one-man-one-vote system, and bureaucracy is the most difficult way to get anything done. Why do you have such an inefficient system? Well, we've been working hard at it. <laughs> Actually, we've been trying to streamline things, but that could take years. Why? Bureaucracy. Gotta be dean, you Hey, what's happening, Mork? No, 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 no. You look awfully chipper. Oh, yes, I am happy because of this great democracy. Have place to live, have driver's license. Didn't it take you all day to get it? Oh, yes, that's what's so great about it, because where I come from, it would take six months. Really? Oh, yes, and if I fail, they make me date female Russian shot putter. Oh. <laughs> well, Mork and I are really happy you're adjusting to everything so well. Oh, very much, thank you. I, I must leave now, but before I go, I, I want you to have something from me. This is some Russian caviar. Oh, thanks, Sergey. I'm really sorry you can't stay for dinner. Oh, no, no, I have to go back and check out my new dynamite pad. Let's be done, you Hello? Bye. <laughs>
I don't understand it. Democracy didn't work with three people, didn't work with two people, but it works for Sergei and he lives all alone. Well, that's one of the good things about democracy. It protects the individual. And speaking of protection, I think next time you have any questions, you should ask me first. I know, I'm a real nimnal. You asked me to take a poll and I brought home a Russian. Hello. Hello. These are your study assignments for next week. Please note that examinations will be conducted randomly with no advance notice. I will now inspect your uniforms. Truman Henley, your headband is certainly festive. Thank you. However, it is in violation of regulations. Please check the protocol files for recommended guidelines. What is this? It's a, uh... Casaletti design. I studied the technique when I visited their planet. It took me weeks to learn. I know it doesn't look complicated. This but ornament is in violation of the dress code. It was hidden. You could hardly see it. You will remove it now. I know. I'll have to take off the earring. Correct. In addition, your boots are scuffed. From now on, you will arrive in polished boots. Yes, sir. Do you have a problem, Mr. Dalby? No, sir. Very well. Sounds like the Quebec uh, bureaucracy is going to get a dressing down from Tuvok because they've just imposed, or recently are trying to impose, a charter of values, Pauline Marois' um, attempt at being Tuvok here. Um, and that's bringing up the discussion of freedom of religion because that seems to be the uh, the battle cry of the people opposing Marois um, edict. Now, of course, the real intent of the legislation in Quebec is to curtail the use of the niqab and the burqa by Muslims. But since the government is too timid to name the real purpose out of Islamophobia, that is a true fear of, <laughs> of Muslims, and um, the real purpose of the legislation, and too ignorant to properly defend a banning of facial coverings, it has sought to soften its justifiable attack on traditional Arab facial coverings for women by introducing a broad piece of legislation which prohibits obvious religious dress and ornamentation by every religion except, of course, Catholicism, where government employees may still wear crosses, as long as they're little and small. And, of course, there's that big honking <laughs> big cross the government uh, of Quebec has in its National Assembly, but apparently we can't talk about that. Equality for all, except for us. Yes, yeah, some are more equal than others, apparently. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, now, the notion of freedom of religion is a throwback, I think, to the times in Western culture when people were persecuted quite overtly by the state for their professed beliefs and religious practices. It probably comes from the belief that, for example, to be a Catholic as all Christians were before the time of Martin Luther, of course, their loyalty in all matters spiritual were to the Pope, a foreigner. This division of loyalties between the state that they actually lived in and the Pope, who was a foreigner, gave rise to our current oath to the monarch, by the way, affirming that when it comes down to it, the citizens were loyal to the queen or king and not to the Pope. And these suspicions of mistrust as to one's loyalty through their own country were felt 
even into recent times. Do you remember, Bob, when uh, John F. Kennedy was elected president of the United States? First Catholic president. Yeah, it was thought to be a momentous mm -hmm. event that a Catholic should assume that office. Such was the deep-rooted suspicion of Catholics who uh, followed the spiritual edicts of a foreign ruler, the Pope especially for Americans who are, who are very nationalistic and, they're, and patriotic. Oh, interesting. You know, even as a Catholic, I never saw it that way at the time. Mm -hmm. It was not how it was explained to us. It was simply religion. Yes. Nobody knew what... what it was what, just what, simply what, a discrimination. Yeah, right. Yeah. Without the history behind it or anything. Yeah. yeah. Now, in the Middle Eastern culture, such a thing as freedom of religion, of course, is unheard of. To this day, apostasy is an offense punishable by death in primitive societies where Islam is the predominant faith. Uh, a Jew or a Christian in Muslim countries is considered a second-class citizen who must pay a special tax in order to live in a predominantly Muslim country. In today's more enlightened world, such anachronistic practices seem more than just out of place. They seem medieval or barbarous, and of course they are. But here we are today with Quebec's premier tiptoeing around Muslim sentimentalities by declaring all religious garb to be verboten. I think it is beyond time to look at the issues of freedom of religion from a more objective viewpoint. Freedom of religion is nothing more than the freedom to be irrational, to make incorrect choices, to believe in the supernatural and fairy tale gods and demons, but not only believe in such things, but to act in accordance with these beliefs, to wear strange clothing, to adorn oneself with the symbols of one's beliefs to practice bizarre acts of adoration, contemplation, and penance to these imagined gods, fairies, and demons. Does one really have a right to be irrational? Well, only in the sense that one has a right to think and to make mistakes. Of course one has a right to think and to make mistakes. Does one have a right to make these uh, mistakes and then act on them? Well, it depends on the action, doesn't it? If the action does not affect others, then of course one has a right to act on their mistaken beliefs in gods, angels, and demons. If one chooses to be a Christian and go to church on Sundays, you have every right to do that, as long as that obligation to your faith does not affect others. For example, you may consider Sunday a holy day, but you do not have the right to force anyone else to shut their stores down in observance of your holy day. If you choose to be a Muslim and make homage to the broken fragments of a stone in Mecca five times a day, you have a right to do that as long as you do not expect others to provide you with a room in which to pray or a carpet upon which to kneel. If you're a Sikh, your choice of religion does not entitle you to ignore your employer's safety rules about wearing a hard hat on a construction site because, according to the dictates of your religion, you must never cut your hair and therefore wear a turban, which prevents you from wearing a hard hat. Your choice, live with it. Your choice to act irrationally does not impose an obligation on anyone else. Should I say, it should not impose That's an obligation on anyone else. Because right now, you are imposing your choices on other people. In this sense, you do not have a freedom of religion. In fact, even if you choose to act rationally, your choice does not impose an obligation on anyone else, and it should not. You do not have a right to impose obligations on others other than for them to leave you alone, to pursue your beliefs, misguided or not. Freedom of religion can be broken down, I think, into two more fundamental freedoms. You alluded to this, Bob, in, in your talk earlier on. Freedom of expression, and of course, freedom of action or liberty. 
Um, Whereas our previous guy yeah. disagreed, he would have said they're separate things, but I don't think so. I think we can look at it from both perspectives, yeah. but... Oh, uh, no, that's why I entertained it. Yeah. yeah. That is all that one can expect to res uh, result from a belief in a god, of course. The expression of that belief and the actions one takes which are required by that belief. If those expressions are peaceful, i.e. they are not inciting riot or treasonous when they should be, then they should be permitted. If the actions are, um, if the actions are peaceful, i.e. not adversely affecting the lives, liberty, or property of others, then they should not be infringed upon either. But if the expression of your religion calls for violence, then your freedom has come up against a brick wall, and that wall is the freedom of others. If the actions you take in regard to your religion violate life, liberty, and property of others, then your actions have, quite rightly, come up against a proper barrier, freedom and rights of others. You do not have an absolute right to your religious practices. Coming back to the government's ban on religious garb and symbol, I see no rational reason to ban their use unless they interfere with the rights of others. The only time that they that can occur is in identifying the government employee one is dealing with. To that extent, no facial coverings should be used in dealing with any government employee, in my opinion. Irrespective uh, of religious issues. Irrespective yeah. of that is... And by the way, the wearing the niqab and the burqa are apparently, from my talk with Muslims, aren't even a religious requirement. That is an Arab tradition of modesty. That's it. It is not a requirement of Islam. Understood. Yeah. Now, whether they wear a crucifix... And by the way, wearing a crucifix is not a requirement to be a Catholic either. You don't go to church and say, okay, everybody has to wear a crucifix. That's unheard of. Of course not. Just people choose to wear these uh, adornments. Or like Mark, who wears his Mickey Mouse watch. <laughs> <laughs> is that required? It's a choice, <laughs> yeah. So whether they wear a crucifix around their neck is a matter of personal expression, not a government statement. If they wear a scarf around their head, it's a matter of personal expression, which does not violate my rights nor bring the actions of government into question. But... If they cover their face and thereby conceal their identity, they are bringing the actions of the government into question, as anyone dealing with the government must be able to positively identify the person they're dealing with. This applies mostly with people who have been given the authority to use force, the police and the armed forces, for example. Recourse to the misuse of force and authority relies on a positive identification of the person misusing that force. And for that reason alone, no government employee should conceal their identity. And by the way, the use of force by government um, extends well beyond the police and armed forces. For example, um, you have uh, regulators coming to a business. They have force. They can come into your place of business and inspect your books, inspect your place, and they can't come in there with their faces covered. Mm -hmm. They just can't do it. But this simple explanation seems to go beyond the grasp of Quebec Premier Pauline Marois, who is using a rather blunt instrument in the form of her charter of values to deal with a particularly small practice from a particularly small minority of people who choose to conceal their identity in public, <laughs> i.e. some Muslim women. It should be noted, too, that she does not expect her legislation to pass. Yeah, she's doing so, everything to dance around it so, and try to change it. Well, now. still, there's, there's still, I think this, this has other reasons behind it, too, not just what we see on the surface. I think there's a lot going on here. We're going to take a break, and when we come back from these two clips, one, of course, is, uh, is Obama talking about rights, and um, a funny piece from uh, Monty Python. Uh, again, it's about rights and wrongs, and in this case, it's wrong rights. We'll be back after okay. this. Hi, everybody. 
Over the past few weeks, I've been visiting with Americans across the country to talk about what we need to do to secure a better bargain for the middle class. We need to rebuild an economy that rewards hard work and responsibility, an economy built firmly on the cornerstones of middle class life. Good jobs, a good education, a home of your own, a secure retirement, and quality affordable health care that's there when you need it. Right now, we're well on our way to fully implementing the Affordable Care Act. In the next few months, we'll reach a couple of milestones with real meaning for millions of Americans. Your health insurance isn't something to play politics with. Our economy isn't something to play politics with. This is not a game. It's about the economic security of millions of families. See, in the states where governors and legislatures and insurers are working together to implement this law properly, states like California, New York, Colorado, and Maryland, competition and consumer choice are actually making insurance affordable. So I'm going to keep doing everything in my power to make sure this law works as it's supposed to. Because in the United States of America, health insurance isn't a privilege, it's your right. And we're going to keep it that way. Thanks, and have a great weekend. Why are you always on about women, Stan? I want to be one. What? I want to be a woman. From now on, I want you all to call me Loretta. What? It's my right as a man. Well, why do you want to be Loretta, Stan? I want to have babies. You want to have babies? It's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. You can't have babies! Don't you oppress me. Here, I've got an idea. Suppose you agree that he can't actually have babies, not having a womb, which is nobody's fault, not even the Romans, but that he can have the right to have babies. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother. Sister, sorry. I do feel, Reg, that any anti-imperialist group like ours must reflect such a divergence of interest within its power base. Agreed. Francis? Yeah. I think Judith's point of view is very valid, Rich, provided the movement never forgets that it is the inalienable right of every man or woman or woman to rid himself or herself or herself. Agreed. Thank you, brother. Or sister. Or sister. Where was I? <laughs> I don't know which is funnier there, the Monty Python clip we just listened to, or the Obama. <laughs> Actually, listening to Obama, basically what he was saying was, I'm going to impose an obligation on everybody to pay for everybody else's health care. Have a good weekend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's every right... And, and, and it seems apparently the only choice is it's either a right or a privilege. What? Uh, There's no third choice? <laughs> I do like that, though. Yeah. It's every man's right to have babies. Yeah. What's wrong with that statement? Well, it's exactly the same thing that's wrong with President Obama stating that it's every American's right to have health insurance. It's an evasion of reality. It's an evasion of the proof of the senses, and it's an antithesis of reason. There are a plethora of so-called rights out there, which are, in fact, not rights at all, but simply wishes and demands. The right of a man to have babies, the right to free health care, the right to a job, the right to a livable wage, the right to affordable housing, the right to be fed, the right to be clothed, the right to be treated with dignity, etc., etc. The United Nations has come up with a great list of rights. Some are actually legitimate rights, by the way, but most, like these, are false rights. I'm quoting from the United Nations here. 
No one shall be subject to a tax upon his honor and reputation. Everyone as a member of society has the right to social security and is entitled to now get this, entitled to realization through the national effort and international cooperation and in accordance with the organization and resources to the state, of the state, of the economic, social, and cultural rights indispensable from the dignity and the free development of his personality. What? First thing on my <laughs> mind every morning. Yeah. Everyone has a right to work, to free choice of employment, to just and favorable conditions of work, and to protection against unemployment. Hmm, really? Everyone without any discrimination has a right to equal pay for equal work. Really? Everyone who works has the right to uh, just and favorable remuneration, ensuring for himself and his family an existence worthy of human dignity, and supplemented, of course, if necessary, by other means of social protection. By his, that's code for wealth confiscation. Everyone has the right, according to the United Nations, to rest and leisure including reasonable limitations of working hours and periodic holidays with pay. Again, wealth confiscation. Everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood. Okay. In, yeah, I know. This is just going on, isn't it? It's That's a list of things, isn't it? Just oh. things, 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 Yeah, things. wants, 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 desires, needs, Nothing, gimme, gimme, not gimme. Not one of those has anything to do with right, no matter how you define the word right. Th by the way, that's just a sampling. That list goes on oh, and on. I could go on and on, but these examples are more than enough to illustrate my point that the concept of rights has been not only been misused, but purposely usurped by the left to force some to provide for others. What is wrong with the rights enumerated by the United Nations that many of them impose an obligation on others to provide these so-called rights? They are, in effect, the enslavement of some to provide for others. They are not rights. They are wrongs. There's a major, a major difference between what can be considered legal rights uh, also referred to as entitlements, and moral rights. Those rights, as outlined in such documents as the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, for example, the rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, individual rights, these have a, demonstrably, a demonstrable basis in reality and can be logically defended. Now, one of the best synopses of Ayn Rand's view on individual rights was penned by Craig Biddle of the Objective Standard. I'm going to quote from here. Quote, Rand reasoned that because man's life is the standard of moral value, because each person should act to sustain and fur further his own life, and because physical force used against a person stops him from acting on his basic means of living, we need a moral principle to protect ourselves from people and governments that attempt to use force against us. That principle involves the concept of rights, Quoting Rand here, rights are a moral concept, the concept that provides a logical transition from the principles guiding an individual's actions to the principles guiding his relationship with others. The concept that preserves and protects individual morality is a social context, the link between the moral code of a man and the legal code of a society. Between ethics and politics, individual rights are the means of subordinating society to moral law, unquote. Back to Craig Biddle, the moral law 
that Rand speaks of here is the principle of egoism. The observation-based moral truth that each individual should act to promote his own life and is the proper beneficiary of his own actions. Individual rights are the means of subordinating society to the truth of egoism. What do you think of that, Bob? Well, I agree with that, of course. <clears throat> you can list all these rights and see the obligations that are imposed upon them. I mean, if you think you have a right to employment, well, what does that say about the employer? What's his right? Does he have an obligation to employ you? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody screams for jobs, and, you know, nobody says, I don't, see, I don't hear people out there screaming for employers. Right. Where's all our employers? Why don't they all get out and get behind the employers? Right? No, they're, they actually make the very people who, th who say they have a right to a job make the employer the only person who creates that relationship between an employee and employer, which is called a job, and they make an enemy of him and yet put an obligation on him to provide him with this right. It's amazing. It's it's contradictory right through and through. Uh, yeah, and not just the right to a job, of course, but any of these so-called rights are providing are are, are um, imposing obligations on others, enslaving them, actually. I, yeah, how do you have, have a right to rest and leisure? Could you explain <sighs> that one to me? Because I haven't, I haven't figured that one out yet. Well, that, that's when covered... When am I getting my rest and leisure? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's covered by the uh, the right to uh, have a paid vacation. Hmm. Really? Yeah. Oh. You know, it's precisely what these false rights of the United Nations doesn't do is subordinate uh, society to the individual. It imposes obligations on others to provide for their the life of strangers. It requires wealth confiscation, taxation, slavery on all so that others can benefit. And by the way, uh, that particular article is very lengthy and, and one of the best articles I have ever seen uh, synopsizing the um, Ayn Rand's view of individual rights. It's actually changed my mind to some degree on what I thought individual rights were about. I've always used the word, is, is rights stem from our nature as rational individuals. Somewhat true, but not, um, not something that Rand would say. She would say that you have to be able to defend rights logically using observation mm -hmm. and going back to reality. Now, uh, you can, if you want to check out that article itself, it's on the um, the website of the Objective Standard, and that is www.theobjectivestandard.com, and that was written in 2011. And I'll leave you with this one thought: If what you think is a right requires that someone sacrifice themselves to you, what you have is not a right, but a wrong. I agree. And uh, I would even go so far as to say, Robert, that all of these rights enumerated by the United Nations sound good. I think they're just selling points. I don't think they believe in them for a second. I think they're just there to fool people into accepting the collective. Yes. Essentially, that's yeah. it. And, oh, if you get this, this is your reward, you know, even in heaven, you know, take it that far, right? And, and basically what it all boils down to is they get all, they get to control the whole it's all right. about money it's all and politics, power. All politics. Yep. And that's why we'll have to leave you for another week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Be sure to join us next week when we'll continue that very journey right here on CHRW. Nanu Nanu. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Let's not see you at home later. Ciao. Bye, everybody. One, two. We can play democracy. Come on, everybody's doing it. Do the vote. <laughs> We've got three of us. We can vote on something.
I don't want to play. Oh, come on, we'll let you vote first. We have, we have enough to break your majority. <laughs> Republican. <laughs> but we have nothing to vote on. Well, we can vote to adjourn then. All in favor, say ear. That's I. Oh, well, it's two, it's the majority. We win, let's pack it in. 